Good morning and welcome to worship. We are so glad to be with you and providing this resource for you. We hope that this is a really great and sweet time for you and your family uh, to worship the Lord and connect around His Word. Hey, before we get started this morning and dive into Exodus chapter 32, I've got a few announcements for you about our ever-changing situation and some things to be aware of here at our church. First and foremost, you can find all of the online resources we're developing on a week-in, week-out basis on our church website, kcpchurch.org. You'll see there on the homepage, daily devotionals that are provided for you Monday through Friday. As well, if you were to go to the resources tab and go to the online service uh, resources, you'll find there not just those daily devotionals, but also the Sunday morning worship guide there as well. Also be aware of this, that uh, if you not, have not already joined us on Facebook or Instagram to do so, because there you can get the most swift and up-to-date information. You can find out ways to pray and get connected with others in our church on a day-in and day-out basis. Lastly, you'll also find on our website there, as well as in uh, emails that have gone out in the last couple of days and this week, a needs form. If you are somebody who has some particular needs or know of somebody in particular who has needs, you can go and fill out that form. And we would love to engage with the needs both in our church and in our community. Specifically there, we provide opportunities for you uh, if you need to indicate that you need someone to go shopping for you. If it's uh, unwise for you to get out and be shopping right now because you're at risk because of your health or perhaps your age, then we would love to provide that if there's necessarily financial needs or simply there's a ways there to provide prayer requests. Well, that being said... Uh, let's get to God's word this morning. We decided as a staff that while it was wonderful to look at Psalm 46, that it was good for some normalcy to dive back into where we have been in Exodus. And so we're going to be continuing now our series for the next couple of weeks, uh, beginning now this morning in Exodus chapter 32. But since we took a week off, let's do some review in order to catch us up. Um, Exodus is a book in which God is covenanting with his people. And is showing second generation Israel that he is their covenant God and that he is a God who is worthy of being followed into the promised land. In the early part of Exodus, we see God's power and the way that he defeats Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, the way he saves his people uh, from enslavement. And then we see his goodness, his provision for them, and the way he uh, led them through the wilderness and provides for their daily needs, even though they are an ungrateful and unfaithful people. We also saw in our last time together, Andy preached on Exodus 19 through 24, where we see God, not just his power and his provision, but his longing to have a relationship with his people, in which he calls the people of Israel into a deep and intimate relationship called a covenant. And he shows them through the Ten Commandments, through the giving of this law, the structures of that relationship, how they are to love him well, and what the best life for them looks like in obeying him. You know them as the Ten Commandments, so the law of God. And just like in any relationship where there is a covenant, there's then a deeper connection that happens. And this is what we see in the rest of the book of Exodus. The whole second half, really, of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, is all about God's longing to have, be present with us, to move into a deeper relationship with his people. If we were to look at the structure of Exodus, we would see in these chapters, 25 through 40, a focus on this, God's presence with us. 
And the primary way in which God establishes his presence with the people of Israel is through what is called the tabernacle. In chapters 25 through 31, which we have not looked at, and then in chapters 35, really up to chapter 40, is all about the details of the construction of the tabernacle and then how Israel then enacts those instructions to build the tabernacle. It's all about how God is going to be present with his people. That's such a beautiful truth that we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks, that God longs as our covenant-keeping God, as our covenant-making God, to be present with us, to be with us in a deep and intimate relationship where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But smack dab in the middle of Exodus 25 through 40 in this very long section on God's presence is a dilemma, and that's Exodus 32 through 34. It's a crisis that goes on. And these chapters in this intervening moment are the intervening moments between when God has given his instructions for the tabernacle to Moses up on Mount Sinai and between then and when the people of Israel will go ahead and build the tabernacle. Exodus through 32, 32 through 34 ideally should be taught all together. Unfortunately, this context isn't very ideal for teaching in such a long form like we often get on Sunday morning to be able to deal with all those chapters at once. If I were to deal with all three of those chapters, it would be about how idolatry threatens our, the presence of God, our relationship with God. Then we're going to see why idolatry necessarily threatens our relationship with God. And then lastly, we would see how God reconciles us so that we can ha- eternally have God's presence with us. All those things are dealt with in this dilemma and crisis in chapters 32 through 34. But first we have to look at, and what we'll look at this morning is simply the impetus of that crisis, the idolatry of Israel. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 32. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. If you have a Bible in your house, uh, read along with me as I read from God's word. Now when the people saw, this is verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And rose up to play. This ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we're looking at idolatry this morning. And what we see this morning is a clear act of, in fact, the primary act, the primary image and symbol that's used throughout the scriptures of what idolatry is. After receiving the covenants, Uh, in Exodus 19 through 24, and taking that to the people of Israel, Moses goes back up to the Mount Sinai, and there for 40 days we see that Moses is hearing from God 
um, God giving him the rest of the law and also giving him the instructions for the tabernacle. But while Moses is up there for these 40 days, Israel grows restless, very restless, and they go to Aaron and demand that he make gods who will lead them. And so Aaron brings together their gold, their rings, their nose rings, their earrings, various gold they have in their camps, and he melts it down and makes for them a golden calf, a god. This is a direct affront to Yahweh. God has just said in the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment and the second commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is, you shall make no graven images. And yet we see here within days, within days, within weeks, the people of Israel violating the very covenant they said that they would keep. In fact, the very first laws of that covenant. They have just said, I, I do to God, essentially, in their covenant ceremony. And here in the first 40 days, they are creating and worshiping other gods. And here's a kicker. It's a terrible kicker. Do you remember where they actually got their gold? That when God was saving them from the people of Egypt, when they were being after the Passover, as they were leaving Egypt, the people of Egypt gave them their gold and their silver, their jewels, pleading with them to go. In other words, these were essentially gifts of God in the midst of their salvation. This would be like taking the wedding ring as an ultimate insult and selling it off in order to have a weekend retreat with your lover. This is what the people of Israel are doing. This is an idol, a created being for them to worship above their creator. And so we look at this idolatry, the impetus for this crisis in Exodus 32 through 34. Idolatry. What is idolatry? That is a word that is often talked about in the Christian world. You hear about it, idols. What are your idols? What are the idols of your heart? Now, don't be confused. Idolatry is deeply connected to, this, to a shorter word, sin. Idolatry is giving us an expression or an image for understanding what sin is. In fact, the word sin is very much intricately linked to the word idolatry. In Exodus chapters 1 through 31, we only see the word sin 10 times in those 31 chapters. And yet here in Exodus 32 through 34, we'll see that word sin connected to this act 11 times. But to understand what is idolatry, particularly in a world where we talk about it and therefore there can, a lot, and there can be a lot of confusion as to what it is, what is idolatry, it's best to look at what the Bible says it is. The psalmist himself in Psalm 106 refers to this event as an expression of idolatry. And it says this in Psalm 106, verse 19 through 21. They made a calf and worshipped a metal image. And they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. This is an explanation of the Exodus calf episode. The idea of the psalm is that Israel, in their idolatry, what they did is exchange the glory of God for another God. They exchanged the glory of the true God for the lesser glories of other things. That is what idolatry is. If I could give a definition to idolatry, here's what it is. Idolatry is the greater love of, trust in, or obedience to anything other than the true God. Idolatry is the greater love of, trust in, or obedience to anything other than the true God. 
having a principled understanding of idolatry helps us connect to it for our lives today. The age-old way you would teach this if you were in a Sunday school class with little children is you would have to explain the idea that we don't serve and worship idols like they did, quote-unquote, those people, the Israelites. Even our children understand that we are far beyond this idea of bowing down to metal images. But let's not, we can't even get lost, though. We shouldn't get lost in our modern sophistication. If we take the principle and core of what idolatry is, we can see how, indeed, we serve idols as well. Things that we love more than God. Things that we trust in more than God. Things that we give our allegiance and our obedience to more than God. There are all kinds of ways to help us diagnose. You know, when you go to the doctor, you get a diagnosis, and they ask you questions to help you figure out, in the midst of the symptoms, what it is is the problem. There are great questions to ask about our diagnostic for understanding idols to pull the curtain down so that we can see them for what they are. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, has done perhaps more than any other in reintroducing this idea and this vernacular of idolatry to the Christian world. A number of years ago, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And there in that book and a number of other places, he provides some diagnostic questions for us to help us identify our idols. For example, here's one good question. What can we not live without? Tim Keller says this, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, when we want it that badly and long for it, we have to have it. It will actually lead us to disobey other rules, rules in which we once would have maybe not done harm to other people, but now we will in order to get what we so desperately long for. So example for this week, perhaps we have an idolatry of comfort or security. And so we've been willing to steal, not steal, but hoard, greedily hoard bread or toilet paper. An idol is anything, Tim Keller says, that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that if you would lose it, you would feel like your life is not worth living. What is something that if you lost, you would wonder if life is even worth continuing. Another great diagnostic question is this, especially in this season where we are right now. What scares you the most? What are you most afraid of losing? Again, Tim Keller says, idols give us a sense of being in control, and we can locate them by lo looking at our nightmares. What do you fear the most? What if, if you lost it, would make your life not worth living? One last question. Another thing, when things get scary, where do you look to for help? Where do you go to in the time when you are scared? What's the thing you look to and say, that will help me? That will save me from this moment. What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your time focusing on and doing in the midst of a scary situation? We are in a moment right now in the midst of this virus and the scare and the shutdown of so many things and the perhaps some economic collapse and financial collapse and the loss of jobs that is actually quite powerful for revealing to us our idols. The wilderness does this so well and we may be entering a season of long and deep and hard wilderness. What do you find threatens you the most right now? What are you most afraid of losing? What disrupts your peace and your sleep? 
What you, what you may find here is if you were to evaluate where your thoughts and your mind and your activities have gone the last couple of weeks, or perhaps if you evaluate those same things moving forward, the direction of the flurry of your activity coming up in the coming days, these things indicate to you where your idols may be found. Well, what was it for the Israelites? What caused them great distress? It was... In particular, we see the occasion of the Israelites, what led to their idolatry was this, that they had to wait. If you look at verse 1, the very first verse, the very first phrase, actually, of this chapter, it says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed. An occasion for turning turning to idols very often is when God calls us to wait, especially where we have to wait in the context of uncertainty and insecurity when we are afraid. These were people with families. They were standing in the middle of a desert. They were people who had not been free for very long. They have no home. They have no jobs. The manna and the quail are very great, but everybody knows that at any moment the manna could dry up and the quail could be gone. They feel exposed. They are vulnerable in this desert, and they are scared. And who has been the one to give them confidence and help in this season? It's been their leader, Moses. He's the one to tell them what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do. He's the one who has been there to assure them and to lead them. And now Moses is gone. Chuck DeGroat, who was a professor of mine at Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote a book called Leaving Egypt, in which he tries to draw this out and help us understand and put ourselves in the place of the Israelites and why they turned in their idolatry to something visible. It's, he says this, Moses was an, a steady embodied presence, perhaps serving as a kind of security blanket for a fearful Israel. In one sense, Moses was God in the flesh to them, the earthly embodiment of God's leadership and presence. Moses could be heard, touched, even argued with, And so when Moses disappears for 40 days, so did Israel's sense of security. And so what did they do? Well, they turned back to the old ways of Egypt. There they turned back in this moment of insecurity to old security blankets. The calf, if you remember back from the times where we looked at the Egyptian idols, the calf was one of those idols that the Egyptians served and worshipped. What many of them had understood, this is what many of them perhaps had worshipped before God had shown up back on the scene again in Egypt and led them out into the wilderness. The calf god is what they were used to trusting in. In a time in fear, they were hedging their bet with something that was familiar. Something that was familiar. Do you see the relevance to you now? In a time of fear and anxiety, we often would return to the old gods to the old things that used to and have given us security. Israel did what she knew how to do. She looked to her old ways of worship and to her old gods. In Moses' absence, she crafted something that she could touch and feel in front of her to to represent for her the, the presence of God that actually Israel longed for so deeply. It's as if the Israelites were saying, we need something we can touch in this time, something we can hold, something that we can pray to and see. 
This is so helpful to us. And this is what we so often do, turning to the tangible, the visible, the things that we can control in a mix of anxiety. You see, some of us will find that the things that we cling to and perhaps have turned to rather rapidly in the last couple of weeks will actually bear the marks of many past days of carrying around our security blankets like Linus wherever we go. It's no surprise that when we go back to old security strategies in the midst of God's apparent absence, whether that be work, lots more work, or looking to sports, which we don't have the option to do right now, or to uh, navel-gazing budgeting, or endless hours, perhaps, of disengagement, of Netflix, and scrolling on social media. Or there are other ways, other security blankets that we've gone back to for comfort and a sense of momentary uh, comfort and peace in the midst of stress and anxiety. Things that are we see as more unacceptable, like addictions to substances or images. Chuck Girl once again says this, and these things, we are searching for something that can assure us. And he goes on and says this, in a sense, our golden calves assume a kind of personality that speaks to us. They say this, come to me and I'll hold you for a bit. I know you're scared. What have been the idols that you've heard them saying that perhaps deep down? Come to me, even for a moment of pleasure and relief. I know you're scared. I can provide relief. You see, the Exodus story is predicated on waiting and so too is ours. It is part of the difficulty. Our idols say, I'm here. You can hold me, you can touch me, you can do something with me. But God says we're called to wait. Wait just a little while longer. And we're, we're waiting not just for God to return, but we wait in the midst right now, as Israel did, in the midst of extraordinary times, in the midst of deep uncertainty and insecurity. We are scared. And in the midst of our pain and our fear, the small satisfaction of a golden calf often feels better than the pain and the wonder of waiting. But the cruel and comedic irony is this. What are Moses and God doing while the people of Israel are supposed to be waiting? What are Moses and God doing while the people of Israel are seeking to fashion for themselves God's presence in this illicit way? Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle how God will actually come to be with his people in a more deep and intimate way and how they will experience God's presence and security more profoundly. But they could not wait. They could not wait. The terrible irony of the situation is that the very thing that they most longed for was being ready and made available for them. And yet they did not wait for it. And we see their idolatry because of this there is great destruction that comes about because of idolatry. We'll be brief on this. There's a lot of destruction that happens when we allow idolatry to take hold in our life. For example, when we serve idols, we begin to retell old stories or false stories. We reshape the past. For example, what we see here is that Aaron and the people of Israel fashion a, a golden calf, and it says that we want to worship this God who brought us out of Egypt this amounts as an attempt to take what God has done in the previous 31 chapters of Egypt and flip the story on its head so that we retell it in an untruthful way. 
When we give ourselves to work, to family, to comfort of all sorts, the story of our life begins to be retold so that the hero of our story is changed. How we got that raise at just the right time, or we found that lover in the perfect season of loneliness, or how we discovered the idea of self-care when we were really falling apart. So we retell the story of God's provision with something created where we take the gifts of God and make them central as opposed to giving focus and praise to the God who provided them for us. Idols also pervert our worship. In verses 5 and 6 here, we see that Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we will feast before the Lord. And it says, then they have a party, a sacrifice, and they have a feast, and they party, it says at the very end. Two times in the book of Exodus do we hear the people of Israel having a feast, gathering for eating and drinking. The first of those times is in Exodus chapter 24, at essentially their wedding with God, their covenant relationship where God it, it, it joins them and enters into this relationship after giving them the law. And there it says in, verse, in, in Exodus 24, they beheld God and they ate and drank. But the second time where we see eating and drinking happening in the book of Exodus is here. In other words, what's happening is they're taking the very things that God has meant to be a celebration of the relationship with him, eating, drinking, dancing, and yet using them to worship a false god. They're saying... They, then it says at the very end that they rose up to play. They're twisting in, in the very thing that God has said as a means of worship to him and now are worshiping a false god. Understand that this, play, this word at the very end of the section in, in verse 6, rose up to play, is a euphemism probably for erotic acts that were done in the worship of pagan gods. This would be like having a beautiful wedding ceremony and having an affair with somebody in a back room to take the very thing that God had meant to be a celebration of him and your relationship with him instead using it to serve other gods. And do you notice what Aaron says here? He says, we'll create a idol so that we might worship the Lord Yahweh. But it is clearly is not Yahweh that they worship here because they violate in this acts of playing the very commands of how they are to love God, their covenant partner, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet this is what we see that they're doing as an act of quote-unquote worship, supposedly, to this God. You see, we can complain, we can claim that we're worshiping the Lord, Yahweh, all we want, but our distorted worship that violates God's commands and the ways God has said to love him shows that we're really worshiping someone or something else. It, and ultimately, though, what we see that destroys, that is destroyed in our idolatry is it threatens our the presence, our experience, the presence of God. What we see here is a crazy change of pace in the book of Exodus. In 25 through 31, God is planning on constructing this beautiful building where he is going to make a house for him and his people to dwell with one another, to be close to one another. And then with a screeching halt, with a radical shift, we see that this rebellion, this idolatry at the foot of the mountain threatens the beauty of this relationship that God wants to have with us. God is planning to be with his people, a permanent place with them, where he can say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then suddenly we are caught up in an event that could threaten that beautiful future. Now listen, we're going to come to a close here now. 
We can't look at all the section and we can't get to the good news. In fact, what we see today is a lot of really bad news. And actually, it gets worse next time in the next section we look at. So I'll just have to leave you with this, that we have to read this text in much the same way that the original readers would have read this text. Remember, we have to get some good news in this way. Remember that it's the second generation Israel that's getting this and receiving these stories. What do they have? They have the tabernacle. They still have God's presence. They have God still leading them. So the question would be after these first six verses, we know there's good news. How do we get God's presence still when we have been so unfaithful? We failed, but someone in this story will redeem this story. Someone will bring about some good news. And so as readers this morning, but even more profoundly as people who also now find ourselves in a place of insecurity, my call for you this morning is unlike the people of Israel, do not turn to false gods. Instead, wait upon the Lord. You see, we have to wait in understanding the good news and reading this text. But even more profoundly, in God's seeming absence, we so often forget what God has already said about us, that we are his beloved, that we are his treasured possession. We forget that God is right now busy redeeming and restoring and fashioning for us a world that is perfect, a place where we will experience his presence without end. And we have to remember that. Wait on the Lord. And while we're tempted to desperately seek out our substitutes for security, remember this, that it was God's son, the carpenter who he raised to be, is building for us a building, a home for restless and weary and, yes, very scared pilgrims. Wait on the Lord. The good news is coming. The glory of God and his kingdom and his presence forevermore is ours and will be without end. Well, King's Chapel, I love you. I want to give you a benediction and a blessing as we go. And until we know what God is going to do and we know the good news, hear this benediction, this promise and blessing of God. May we know that even in the face of idolatry, quarantine or virus, that your God will never leave you or forsake you. I love you and Lord willing, I'll see you very, very soon.